there's a lot of glitter in this joint today. I don't know if you'll notice that. We did that just for you guys to say welcome back after a hiatus from being here. Actually, I think that was the uh, Gravel Young Singles uh, yeah, on Friday night. They had like 500 people here and had a, quite the shindig, I think. I mean, even the projectors were moved and not where they normally are, so uh, it was a partay. Partay. So, a little bit of glitter. You may go home and have some on your derriere. I don't know. It, it could happen. Uh, don't sue us if so. Hey, we're glad to be back. Um, it, it's crazy being out so many weeks in a row, two weeks back to back. If anyone showed up last Sunday, we, we are sorry. We tried to get that word out. Um, but we will be here for the rest of the year. Our next Sunday that we won't be here will be New Year's Day. And so you get, get Sunday off. But otherwise, we did sign a contract for all of 2023. And I think there's only like two Sundays that we won't be here. And so we would probably plan those anyway. So just know that. Um, glad to be back. I know that uh, we started getting texts this morning of people saying, hey, we're not going to be here. We're sick. Thumb bug floating around. And uh, sorry about that. For those who are listening or going to catch us later, uh, I hope you're feeling better and everything's staying, staying in you today. Um, so anyway, that's all we'll say about that fun stuff. We're back in Mark today, and uh, we're glad to be here. Um, today is one of those, it, it is a big chunk of Scripture, and we're going to try not to get bogged down and just uh, to see what, it, what it's trying to say. Three weeks ago, we covered kind of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the beginning of what we call the Passion Week, and uh, we saw the palm branches being laid down. We saw all of that stuff happening, kind of like the proverbial red carpet of people as they were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as he's marching to the cross, kind of his death march. Um, and that sounds terrible, and it was, but it was also victorious. And so we get to celebrate that, but at the same time, we also need to grieve it as well because it's, it's our sin that put him there. And so today, we're looking at kind of uh, that day one or that very next day in Jerusalem because we do want to be good students of what occurred in that week and think about the things that he said, the things that he did, uh, because he was incredibly intentional with the time that he had left, the time that he was going to the cross. Um, and so today, we're going to pick up chapter 11, starting in verse 12, and we're going to read through 25, and it may be 26 in your Bible, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a second. But I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read, and then we're going to kind of break this down and see what Mark is saying here and see what we need to hear. So let's pray together. God, we love you. Thank you for today. Uh, God, I pray that you would calm our hearts and our minds uh, enough, maybe I should say calm my heart and calm my mind enough to, to think clearly about what you have to say today and what we need to hear. God, thank you for those that are here. God, we do pray for those that are sick today, that are at home, including my family. Um, God, I pray for my boy that he would, uh, he would have a much better day today. Um, and God, I pray you'd protect the rest of us from getting this this terrible stuff. And God, for those others that are out and those that are traveling, God, I pray they know they're missed and they're loved, and we look forward to gathering together with everyone as soon as we can. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So chapter 11, starting in verse 12, and, and I will go ahead and tell you that there is some highly contestable, like debatable ideas in this big chunk of scripture. We're going to do our best to handle those and talk about them and give you some, some pervasive thoughts that are going around about these, um, but also we just want to give you good, good clear handles too on how we, how we read this and how we think about it. So verse 12 says, on the following day, that being the day after he came into Jerusalem, when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple." 
And he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20, And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying... Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. A lot going on in this particular passage. Uh, one thing that we need to acknowledge is Mark. Mark has some very, um, very obvious literary techniques that we don't see in the other synoptics. And in this particular place, he's using something called intercalation. And intercalation is basically like a fancy word for sandwiching. And so we saw it in Mark chapter 5 when we ran into Jairus, the, the ruler of the temple, or the synagogue ruler, in which uh, he came to Jesus and he implored him. He's like, my daughter, she's sick, come lay hands on her, come touch her, come heal her, um, so that she'll be made well. And he throws himself down at Jesus' feet, and on the way, as he's going, he gets interrupted by the woman who had been menstruating for 12 years. Touches the hem of his garment, and she's healed. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And then they pick things back up with Jairus and his family. The daughter dies. All that stuff. Intercalation. So he started with a story. There's another story in the middle, and then they pick back up with the original story on the end. So there's like bread and meat in the middle. No one more important than the other, because bread good, meat good, sandwich good. But anyway, that's what Mark does. And so in this particular text, like it, it may have seemed simpler to us just to tell the story of the fig tree, then to tell the story of the temple cleansing. But the reason that Mark uses this particular literary technique, because he takes two stories that on any given ordinary day would seem separate and disconnected, and he chooses to put them together because he wants one big point to come out of the whole thing, intercalation. And so that's what we have in this particular text. In this particular text, I will say that Jesus is doing kind of three things if we look at it and look at it well. Uh, one is he is pronouncing judgment, which we'll talk about. Two, he's being a bit prophetic, which we'll talk about. And three, he's taking time to teach. And I want us to look at all of those because they all do apply to how then we should live in light of the gospel. And so, starting in the beginning, it says, On the following day, the day after they entered Jerusalem, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And so, I'll be honest. People read this, liberal theologians, liberal scholars, they read it and they're like, Jesus is a terrible, terrible person to kill a fig tree. Okay, here's what I want to point out first before we get into the weeds any deeper. The disciples would have been aware of the culture and the practices more than anybody else, and they weren't offended when they saw it. They were pretty much amazed. As a matter of fact, the other synoptics, they, were say, they said they were amazed. That's, that's the words, amazed. That means shock, awe, all that kind of stuff. They weren't ticked off, okay? But we read it, and we're like, how dare you kill a fig tree? But there, there's a point. And so on the surface, this is what we have. We see Jesus in the distance. His humanity is speaking to him in the form of a growling stomach. He is hungry. He sees a fig tree in leaf. Mark says it's not quite the season or it's not the season for figs, meaning it's not the season for mature figs, uh, but Jesus sees it in the distance. 
and he's hungry, so he goes to it. Even not in the season of figs, if something has leaves, then most likely it has the beginnings of something there. Jesus is hungry. Maybe he goes and wants to grab a figlet, you know, something like that. The actual Greek word for here doesn't say mature fig or immature fig. It just says he sees the tree, and he goes to it seeking something. That's all. The word, like specifically the word, is vague, something something on it. So it may have been just the beginnings of a fig. It could have been a figlet. I don't know if that's the proper terminology for figs. I've never grown them. I don't even like to eat them. I think they're weirdly mushy, and they're not enticing to me at all. They're worse than bananas, and bananas make me gag. But anyway, like figs. Um, do you love figs, Amanda? Are you upset at me right now? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're really weird. But either way, he says he sees the tree in leaf, which means that it has the ability to produce something, and he goes to it to find something, but yet nothing is there. Nothing. And Mark adds one of Markian's notes of it's not yet season for the mature figs. There were different words for uh, young figs and old figs. Those aren't the words that are used in the, in the something. It's just something, but it wasn't the season for mature figs. Jesus finds nothing. And his disciples are watching, his disciples are listening, and he speaks to the tree. You know, to be honest, like if people are going to get upset at something, it should be that Jesus spoke to a tree. But either way, Jesus speaks to the tree, and he says, uh, may no one ever eat the fruit from you again. That's the surface. That's the surface. Beneath the surface, Jesus is doing more. Jesus is saying more. Jesus is speaking more. Jesus is teaching more. The purpose of a fig tree was to feed. The purpose of food is to nourish um, and if something doesn't do that, there's generally a, a proper response. Like if we, if we read other times that fig trees or trees are mentioned in the New Testament, we also see that uh, in Matthew 7, um, like I think we've got that that we can throw up there, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The fire there being Gehenna, the place outside the city walls where refuse and trash was burned, also translated hell. Okay, um, Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And so here in Matthew, synoptic gospel, different writers, same Jesus. Jesus is not really talking about trees here. He's talking about people. And you're like, wow, that's even worse than, than killing a tree. Well, yeah, it is, but he's, he's saying something more in this particular place. The context is very important to where he is. He's in Jerusalem. He's outside of the place where people worship the temple. He's in the holy city where people gather together. And as a matter of fact, right now is Passover in which people are gathering together to go to the temple to worship, to celebrate the time in which the Spirit of God passed over the people of Israel, killed the Egyptians so that the people of Israel could go to freedom. The context of the time, the place, the circumstance is so incredibly vital for understanding not just what this is saying, but why would he kill a fig tree? We also have another passage in, in Luke 13 where it just kind of reiterates the same idea. It's not going to be up here, but just this same notion uh, that barren fig trees, what do people naturally do? They cut them down because they're not serving their purpose. Their purpose is to feed. Their purpose is to nourish. Farmers did it all the time. This tree had leaves. It had the capability to produce something, yet it was producing nothing so Jesus said, may no one eat fruit from you again. The context of this, and I know it may seem like a stretch to you, but the context of everything else, 
again, Jesus is not talking about the tree. He's talking about something within this circumstance, within this place, within this time, within this social structure that should do what the fig tree was meant to do, to feed, to nourish, to supply. Because it had root, it had capability, it had tradition, it had history, it had provision. It should be able to feed and supply, but it could not. Jesus was pronouncing judgment on the leadership of the people of Israel. Jesus was actually talking here about the Pharisees, the scribes, those who had deep roots, had the ability to thrive, had the ability to flourish, had the ability to feed their people. But what we see over and over and over again, and we'll even see a little bit more proof of that in the very next few verses, but also in the very next chapter, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, uh, of just the people here that were in charge, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they were not doing what they were meant to do. They were not feeding. They were not nourishing. They were not providing fruit. So it's not just about the tree. It's more. In this place, we actually see Jesus beginning to pronounce judgment. Because if we think about the, the leadership of the people of Israel and all of the uh, all of the things that have been afforded to them, we could even say grace to them, charismai, the, the things that have been given to them that would enable them to lead the people of Israel, they, they had the stories. I mean, even now at Passover, they had an amazing story about the provision of God to get them out of captivity, to lead them to the literal promised land. They had those stories. They had songs about those stories. They told their kids about these stories. They went to Sunday school or Saturday school and listened to these stories. It wasn't called Saturday school. But either way, that was the Sabbath. And they went and they listened. They had all of these things. They had every privilege possible to learn about the goodness of God and to understand about grace and mercy and that God pours it out freely to to those who call on him and trust in him. Yet instead, what had they done? They had laid up burdens on their people that people could not bear. They had created a system in which no one could make it through alive, and they had placed themselves on pedestals that no one could climb. And Jesus said to them, May no one eat of your tree again. See, it was a tree, but it wasn't about the tree, and the disciples were listening. They heard it all. So we go on. So after this, it says, and the disciples heard it. We'll, we'll come back to some of these ideas in just a second. Intercalation, here's the in between the two pieces of bread. And it says, and they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So here, here's this, this issue, too. Here's another bit of debate about this particular passage. So we have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptics because they give a synopsis of Jesus' timeline of his, earth, of his time here on earth. But then we have John. John's also a gospel, but John's not one of the synoptics because John takes time to actually unpack the ideas, the notions, the doctrines, the theology behind God, the who of God. And so it's a little bit different. He doesn't write in the same way order. And so most people will read this, and they will also accompany with it John, the early parts of John, right after uh, Jesus' first miracle when Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. And, and most, you know, it's kind of a, a debate. Did he do it once? Did he do it twice? Because John puts it at the beginning of his gospel. Matthew and Mark, uh, they put it towards the end, or, Matthew and Luke, or Mark and Luke put it at the end of their gospels. And so, but it sounds very similar. And so you can fall into two camps. And I'll be honest, it doesn't really matter 
if he did it once or did it twice. It just matters that he did it. But just from a teaching perspective and just from a personal perspective, I'm 60-40 on the fact that he did it twice. I'm 60-40. Um, that's just me, okay? I'm 60-40. I, I think the wording is a little bit different, and I think it's very likely because the scholars say, well, if he did it once, wouldn't they have been ready for him if he came and did it again? Well, let's be honest. Do you remember what you had for breakfast three years ago? Probably not. I mean, some of us do. We love breakfast, but, uh, and some of us are intermittent fasting, so we don't eat breakfast anymore, and what a shame. But, like, three years ago, you, you probably wouldn't remember. So it's very possible that three years previous to this, on another Passover, Jesus did go into the temple, and he saw them doing very similar things, because they had been doing it for years and years and years, which we'll talk about. And it says that he sat down, and sat down he made a whip of cords, and he chased them out. He flipped over the tables, and he told them some very pointed things. Beginning of John. Three Passovers later, it's very likely that he came back in and did it again. When he was on his triumphant entry, when he was in the Passion Week doing it again. Either way, he did it. Whether he did it twice, whether he did it once, it doesn't really matter. I'm 60-40 that he did it twice. Here's the reason that I'm 60-40 instead of 90-10. I think if he did do it twice, and this is just my conflict, not yours, I think Mark would have mentioned that he returned to the temple and chased people out again. I don't know. Mark's a kind of a detail guy, you know. He writes good details. Wasn't quite the season of, of mature figs. He put that in there. Um, if he did it twice, I think he may have said it. Either way, I don't know. Gut, 60-40, you know, but, but I don't know. Either way, it doesn't matter. This was the situation going on in the temple. At Passover, people that were of the Jewish faith, whether they were born Jewish or not, if they were worshiping the one true God, they would come to Jerusalem at Passover and they would worship. Um, but if you were coming from a long way off, it didn't make sense for you to bring your sacrifices. Like, it didn't make sense. And so it was standard practice and okay for you to come and buy what you needed to take in and sacrifice. It was still a sacrifice. It cost you something. Uh, so there was that. Should have happened outside of the walls. Okay? We will, we will say that, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but it was also common practice that you had a form of currency that didn't match the form of currency in Jerusalem. And so you would have to convert it. Anytime you go to another country and you want to use their form of currency, you do it in the airport, you do it at the bank, you do it before you go, you convert money. And so those people were there too, outside the city walls. The problem was what we do know is that people were selling stuff inside the temple, okay? There's the key idea. And they were changing money inside the temple, but they were also charging a large percentage. They were actually making money off the conversion of money. And so they were, they were charging them a fee. And, and a lot of people say it was rather exorbitant. It was a little high. But people were trapped. They were there to worship. They were bound to worship. They were going to do it. And so they would pay whatever they needed to pay to convert their money so that then they could go and buy doves, so that they could go and buy pigeons, so that they'd go and buy whatever they wanted to do. And that was kind of a, a, a Gentile thing that they would sacrifice for someone that didn't have a lot. They would sacrifice those, but they were paying a lot. And so Jesus comes in. Either he did it twice or he did it once. It doesn't matter. And he sees those doing this, and he, he flips their tables, like literally, not metaphor. Like he flips they're tables. Like, this is the reason I don't buy into the hippie, Jesus, peace-loving Jesus. Like, he wasn't. Jesus was a man, and, and Jesus confronted the religion, and he went in, and he, he flipped their mess, and he chased them out. Like, he didn't ask them to leave. No, it says he chased them out. John's account, like, he made a whip of cords. He sat down and made a whip and, and got them out. It's crazy. I love that. And you're, you might not love it. You might be like, man, Jesus is killing trees. Jesus is chasing people out of a temple. I don't know who this is. Well, there was a reason. There was a reason. Jesus is going to quote two Old Testament ideas, Isaiah 56 and then also Jeremiah 7, because he looks at them, and after he chased them out, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, verse 16, he says, Is it not written, 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Kind of a, a mixture of Isaiah 56 and also Jeremiah 7 of this is what the temple is supposed to be, and you've turned it into something else. The temple was understood like to be the earthly dwelling place of God and the appropriate place to worship Yahweh, the one true God. And whether you were Gentile, whether you were Jewish, whether you were male, whether you were female, there was a place for all people by design to enter the temple. Now, some could only progress so far, but they were still allowed inside the temple and they were allowed to worship. What Jesus found when he went into the temple here is he found them making this place into a place of profit, not a place of of worship. And he looked at it and he said, this is not right. It's not right. And so he chased them out. And then after he chased them out and he wouldn't allow anyone else to come in, he sat down and he taught them. Why did he chase them out? Because this place, this brick, mortar, wood, and golden place was meant for worship and prayer for all the people. All people. It says in verse 18, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went away out of the city. What Jesus was doing here, not only was he cleansing the temple, but Jesus was being a bit prophetic about what was to come and what he was doing and what he was going to accomplish. Jesus was actually laying out in a very physical way because all of this, from the fig tree uh, to the temple to the, other fi- the, the conclusion of the fig tree, it's like a walking parable on Jesus' part. And right now, he's, he's basically laying out a very physical, prophetic statement of, I've come to restore worship to the one true God. I've, came to, I've come to cleanse, I've come to chase out sin, and I've come to restore it to what it needed to be. And if we... If we think in those terms of everything Jesus said, everything Jesus did, the way that he died, the way that he rose, it makes a lot more sense. The temple, the place where God dwells, meant for worship, should not be hampered, should not be encumbered by distractions, by things that take our eyes off the necessity of God, the privilege of being in his presence, the graciousness that he displays. We shouldn't have to worry about buying. We shouldn't have to worry about converting. We shouldn't have to worry about those things. He's prophetically speaking that he's coming to fix these things. And in John's account, in John's account, he actually adds some more words. Whether he did it at the beginning or whether he did it at the end, again, it doesn't matter. He kind of turned to the Pharisees. He's like, you know, tear this temple down. I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, that's crazy. It took years, decades to build this temple. And John even notes he wasn't talking about the temple, the building. He was talking about himself. And they were. They were about to tear him down. It says the scribes and the teachers, they were looking for a way to destroy him. And they would, but not forever. So here he's prophetically speaking that soon to come, he's going to cleanse the temple so that it can be a house of worship for all the people. The disciples needed to hear that too. They needed to see it. They needed to understand, just like we've talked about. They were dull at times. They needed to see. They needed to understand. They needed to taste and see that God was for all people, not just the Jews. A house of prayer, a house of worship for all people. 
Verse 20, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And again, I will say, they did not say, Jesus, how dare you kill a fig tree? They didn't, they didn't say that. They didn't. It says that they were actually amazed. And it says, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. I love Peter because I think he's probably, he's not the dullest, well, he could have been. But either way, he was impetuous with his speech, and I love that. He's like, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed is withered, like Jesus didn't know. But either way, I, I think it's, it's pretty funny. The fig tree that you cursed is withered down to its roots. My wife and mother-in-law cut down a, uh, a mulberry bush in our backyard yesterday. Huge, like overwhelmingly large mulberry bush. Stains your shoes, stains your hardwood floors. Just, you know, I don't know why people would ever want to dance around a mulberry bush. But um, Either way, a mess. And so they cut it down, and now we've got this root bundle that would take like three of me to get my arms around. And I know that if we don't dig those roots up, that mulberry bush is going to come back, and it's going to be angry. Um, and so we've got to figure out a way to get a front-end loader and, you know, a scoop in our backyard and kill it. But either way, this particular fig tree, roots were gone. It was done. It was done. Remember the judgment that we had talked about a minute ago that he was pronouncing judgment, saying, no one will eat of your tree again. He's also saying, hey... Um, you're going to come to an end, talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. In less than 40 years, they would disappear from history. After the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they were gone. They were gone. Matthew 23 is like this long, long passage about, and I don't know that we put it up there, and if we didn't, that's fine, um, He's pronouncing woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and he's basically telling them, like, look, you, uh, you guys go to all this effort to make conversions to what you were teaching, uh, when in reality you're, you're leading people to hell. You're leading people to hell. He's like, you, you wash the outside of the cup, that's great, but the inside's still filthy. It does no good. He's like, you're whitewashed tombs. He's like, the outside of your caskets and your tombs, they're clean, but inside, guess what? It's full of, like, dead bones, these scribes, these Pharisees, these people that were the religious leaders of the time were leading people away from the goodness of God and leading people to a system that would not save them, that would not redeem them, that would not make them holy, that would not fix the problem because they couldn't fix the problem. Only Jesus could fix the problem. And so he says, look, even your roots are going to be gone. And we see in less than 40 years, they were. They were gone. And so then, <laughs> Jesus is the chief multitasker. Not only does he give the, the judgment, pronounce the judgment, show it in a very physical way, not only does he prophesy about what he's accomplishing uh, by going into the temple and cleansing the temple and teaching about what the temple is for, uh, but then he teaches the disciples through a very physical way. Like he, he pointed to the fig tree. He spoke to the fig tree. He said, like that, and it was gone. It was gone. In Matthew's account, it was, there was no intercalation. There was nothing in between. It was pretty much like he said it, and the disciples noticed it, and they were like, oh, my gosh, that fig tree you just spoke to, it's, it's dead, Jesus. Did you see that? You know, they were just, I mean, it was amazed. They were overwhelmed. But in this case, he decides to teach them, and this is what he teaches them. He just, simple. Remember, he's got limited time left with his disciples. Everything that he says, very intentional, very pointed, very directed, and he says, he starts with this. He says, have faith in God. I like that. Pretty simple. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, do not doubt in his heart, 
but believes that he says what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, uh, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And your translation may add verse 26. Verse 26 basically restates verse 25, but we actually don't have it uh, going back and looking at our earliest manuscripts. It was added, probably a scribal edition, years, years later, a couple, couple hundred years later. And it's not untrue, but we don't find it in our earliest manuscripts that we we kind of discovered in the mid-19th century. And so that's the reason it's not going to be in a lot of modern English translations. Not wrong, it's probably not written in the original manuscripts. And so, uh, and in this particular place, he's just, he's just teaching the disciples. This was kind of Tuesday morning. So Monday had passed, they entered on Sunday. Monday went in the temple, Tuesday morning, they get up, they see the fig tree. And yes, Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the leadership of the religious groups in Israel. But at the same time, he's teaching the disciples a lesson about faith. And he's basically saying, hey, you think that's crazy? Um, the faith that, that you can have can actually move mountains. That's where that bumper sticker comes from, right here. <laughs> faith to move mountains. And he's like, if you believe and you ask for it, God can do it. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Now, granted, this particular passage has been taken grossly out of context, okay? Grossly out of context, because there's also modifiers throughout the rest of Scripture that talk about what it looks like to actually pray in faith and, and talk, to, talk to God in this way and to seek Him. Uh, a lot of this, like this is name it and claim it kind of religion, um, prosperity gospel stuff, like if you want that dollar, ask for that dollar. God will give you that dollar, okay? You know, just like that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, um, but that's basically what he did. He took a moment to teach them about what faith looks like. And so for us, like he's pronouncing judgment on a group of people that are not us, Okay, and he's, uh, he's prophesying about the things that he would do that directly involve us, and he's teaching us, what do we do with this? I think the first thing that we do is um, we stay close to Jesus and we bear fruit. And that's as a drive, as a point. We stay close to Jesus and we strive to bear fruit. Because when we're looking at this, now granted, we are not the religious leadership of Israel, okay? I'm not a Pharisee, even though I have Pharisaical tendencies. I'll just confess that, and I have before. Like the ways that I drift, very often it is religion instead of relationship. I fight that, I confess that, God deals with me with that, but I'm not a Pharisee. He was pronouncing that judgment on them, but the application is the same. The application is the same. When Jesus was speaking about the fig trees and other places and trees and their bearing fruit, and even when he was talking about the parable of the sower, Jesus was talking to us and not just the Pharisees. And basically he was saying, if you're a good tree, you bear good fruit. If you bear bad fruit or don't bear fruit at all, cut down, thrown into the fire. It's pretty pointed language. And so for us, even though we're not in the Pharisee group, we still have to hear the application of this, and the application is we stay close to Jesus so that we may bear fruit. Because the results, if we don't bear fruit, it probably means that we're not close to Jesus and, and we're going somewhere that we don't want to go, separated from God for eternity. And so we stay close to Jesus to bear fruit. This is not a religious idea that we do enough in order that we can be accepted by God. This is we are accepted by God, and as a result, we cling close to him, and he plants us where we need to grow, and fruit bears as a result. And so for us, what, is that, what does that even mean? Well, Galatians 5 comes to mind. That's generally the first place that we go when we think about spiritual fruit. Uh, Galatians 5, and 23, that's the, the fruits of the Spirit. That's the first place our mind goes. Shouldn't be the only place. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all of those things. Those things are important. Yes, they are. It's not the only fruit. Not the only fruit. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created. We were God's craftsmanship, created to do good works beforehand. 
We're his masterpiece created to do good works. One of our fruits is just good works, God's works. Good works, meaning how we love one another, how we take care of one another, how we take care of our neighbor, how we want the best spiritual good for our neighbor. We want the same good for them that we want for ourselves. Those types of things, those are fruits as well. Things that are coming from a good tree, a good tree that's rooted in Jesus. But then Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. Like there were four seeds there. Four seeds. And the only one that was praised was the one that bore physical fruit. The rest, they were not praised. The rest were cut down. They withered. They died. And in this particular case, the fruit of a tree, we have to understand what the fruit of a tree is. Most of the time we're going to say, well, the fruit of an apple tree is what? It's an apple. It is. But what's inside the apple is what matters. It's the seeds in the apple that grows another apple tree that grows another apple that grows another apple tree that grows another apple that grows another apple tree, another apple. The fruit of a believer, the ultimate fruit that we're seeking is another believer. Hear me. It, it's not enough for us to be joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, self-controlled, all of those things. That's great. That's a work. That's an outcropping of the Spirit that's in me. But the ultimate fruit of another believer of a believer is another believer who yields another believer. But John 15, 1 through 6, kind of gives us a little bit of clarification on this idea. I think I put it, yeah, there we go. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and it withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. He says this repeatedly. Here's the thing. If we want to bear the kind of fruit that Jesus is after, the kind of fruit that Jesus desires, it comes from him, not from me. I love the I am the vine, you are the branch kind of metaphor. Like I, I don't, probably none of us have vineyards, but we have to understand like there is no grape without the vine. Like a grape cannot exist apart from the vine. A fig cannot exist apart from the tree. An apple cannot exist apart from the branch which is attached to the tree. It starts with Jesus. And that abide thing, that, that abide is not just stick close, not just pay attention, but that abide is to live in, to walk in, to be in with Jesus. I mean, man, that takes, that takes a lot. We're not earning salvation. We've been granted access to the vine. And we have to choose and be intentional about staying there. About just sticking there. Because the world wants to cut us off. The world desires to cut us away from this vine that gives life, not just to us, but those that we're investing in. The world wants to not prune us to make us better, but cut us off so that we can be gathered and thrown into the fire. That's what the prince of the power of the air wants to do with those who are on the vine. And so that means we resist temptation, we flee the devil, we do all those things, we stay in scripture, we stay in community, we stay in prayer, we do all of those things that we call spiritual disciplines. They're there so that we can stay close, stay on the vine, so that we may bear good fruit. 
through Jesus and only Jesus. Not good intentions, not charitable actions, not right motives, not good morals, just Jesus. Divine. We have to stay there. Because we cannot bear fruit apart from him. The Pharisees tried. They tried everything they could. Gone. That's not the future I want. It's not the future we should desire. That's not the future we need. The future we need is growth, leaves, fruit, orchards, all of those things. That's the future we need because God deserves it. But it's only through him. Only through him. And what else do we do? I think we need to understand the intent and the location of the temple. We need to understand the intent and the location of the temple. This is vital. And, and I read this and I chuckle a little bit. Because in AD 70, in 70 AD, the Romans were so tired of this way. They were so tired of this revolution that had occurred through, that had occurred through a carpenter. You know, this guy who hung on a cross and died. So what they desired to do was destroy it. So you know what they did? They destroyed the temple. Little did they know, 40 years previous, Jesus had relocated that temple. It wasn't within the walls anymore. It wasn't behind a curtain anymore. It had been moved to the hearts of those bound to God through Jesus, indwelled by the very Spirit of God. How disappointing for them it must have been to know that they could not quash a rebellion started by a carpenter from Galilee. How frustrating and how glorious. They tried so hard. Jesus moved the temple decades before. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know? Do you not know that you, or Greek, y'all, are the temple of the living God? Do you not understand that you, you, those bound to God by Jesus, sealed, guaranteed with the Holy Spirit, now we are the location of the dwelling place of God here on this earth. It's not a building. It doesn't matter how many stained glass, how much stained glass it has, how many beautiful ornate pews it has, how tall the steeple reaches. It does not matter. It doesn't matter what city it's in. It doesn't matter what mountain it's in. It only matters if that individual has confessed Jesus as Lord, abandoned their sin, and been linked to God for eternity through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That is the dwelling place of God. But it's not just you. It is y'all. And Ephesians goes on to tell us, uh, Ephesians is a beautiful example. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the households of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So it is the you, but it's also the y'all. It's the we, it's the us. The collection of the saints, those who came before, those who will come after across all time, across all space, those who are bound to God by Jesus with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are the temple, the dwelling place of God. That's the location. But the intent... Unlike the location, the intent has not changed. The intent of the temple is to be a dwelling place for God in which people gather and worship. And so we gather together and we worship together. One God, one Savior, one Spirit, and just for His glory. Not for mine, 
not for yours, not for our kingdom, but just for his. And this is the beautiful thing, the same thing that he said to them when he was speaking out of Isaiah, and he said, it is for all people. All people. All people can come and confess Jesus as Lord if they see him as better, if they see him as more than, if they see him as greater than their sin, and they trust him to make, him, make them right with God. They, too, can be a dwelling place for God. All the people, no longer Jew, no longer Greek, no longer male, no longer female, doesn't matter. All people. Sufficient for all, efficient for those who believe. It's available. Romans 10, even on the, the heels of a very strongly, theologically difficult few chapters, Romans 10 reminds us that faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. How are they to hear unless they're told? How are they to be told unless someone preaches? How are they to preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who take the good news? If we confess Jesus as our Lord, we will be saved. The intent of the temple has not changed. The location has, but the intent is still the same. So that all may worship God. So that all. But now the temple gets to go wherever we go. Therefore, the gospel gets to go wherever we go. The opportunity to confess and repent gets to go wherever we go, as long as the words leave our mouth. Because the gospel is linguistic. The gospel is made up of language. The gospel is salvific, but it has to be made up of words. Understand the intent and the location of the temple. The last, the last which probably could be a, a three-week series is we need to think well on faith, prayer, and forgiveness. That's what he was trying to tell the disciples. He's like, look, I've shown you what judgment looks like. I've shown you what prophecy looks like. I've told you what I'm going to do by what I've just shown you. But also, since I've just got a little bit of time left, I also need to teach you a little bit about what I just did and what you can do too. Think well on faith, prayer, and forgiveness. I think for us, like if we do read this out of context of the whole of Scripture, we could read this and be like, oh, well, I, I want a new car, and just kind of wait. You know, I don't know what that new car for you may be. Maybe a Yukon? I don't know. Could be something fully electric? I don't know. But either way, if we read this without context, we'll be like, new car. That's what I'll take. And rub the lamp, nothing happens. And so what we need to see is the rest of Scripture. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. It says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request, or we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So in this place, modifying a little bit about what we know, it says, yes, we will get what we ask for as long as we're asking for things in his will. And you're like, well, then, does, that, does he want me to have that car? Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't want you to spend $4 in gas in a vehicle that gets 10 miles to the gallon. I don't know. I don't know, but either way, in this particular place, it's telling us uh, if we need to ask according to his will. And again, it goes back to John 15, staying on the vine. Like, how do we know the desires of God? We ask him. We stay close to him. We listen for him. We let him guide us through scripture. We let him guide us through our interactions with community. We let him guide us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the way that he speaks through those other things, the way that he confirms those things. We go back and we look at Nehemiah, the way that he prayed. And what did Nehemiah pray? Nehemiah prayed the promises of God. He actually prayed, hey, God, you said that you were going to do this. That's what I want. I want what you want. 
if we want to ask and receive, we need to be unified with God to know His desires. And then we seek those to such a degree that we pray for those and we believe that He's going to grant them because He's a God of His Word. And then John 14, 12 through 14 gives us a little more information. And it says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me and will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, like the mountains. You know, I, I cursed the fig tree and it died, but think about the mountain. The mountain can move too, if you believe. Greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so not only do we ask according to the will of God, but we understand that it's through Jesus, through this intermediary that's been granted to us, that goes before us, that has gone between us and the wrath of God, that has taken my wrath, that has taken your wrath, died in my place, it's only possible through the vine. Only possible through Him. We're not getting it because we say the special words or the magic incantations. We're doing it because we've agreed with God's will, but we're also in union with Jesus, and it's through Him that we can have these things. And then the last is, is kind of weighty. The last one has some, some implications that we don't like. Basically, it's just saying, if you're asking me for anything, whether it's in my name or whether you think it's in my will or not, but yet you're holding things against people and you're not forgiving, then you're not going to get it. You say, well, that's unfair. No. God's economy is very different from ours. And here's, here's the giveaway. If we think that we're asking things in His will and we think we're asking in the name of Jesus, but yet we're unforgiving people and we're not in God's will, and we're not asking in Jesus' name, we're asking in our own. Because God came so that all could know him. And if they know him, that means they've been forgiven by him. And Jesus just basically told us. I mean, he told us outright through the disciples, forgive as I've forgiven. Forgive as I've forgiven. So you're, we look at this and it just basically says, look, if, if you're unwilling to forgive people, then don't expect God to give you the things that you're asking for. Because you can't be in his will if you're holding things against people. It says, so when you stand up and pray, very clear directions. Like if you stand up to pray to ask God for things before you ask him for anything, forgive those people that you're holding things against. And so for us, here, here's like, man, crystal clear application. We may need to forgive some people. Whatever we're holding against them, whether it's travesties on a grand scale or whether it's minuscule petty things if we're holding it against them when we're unwilling to forgive number one we're not in god's will number two we're not walking around in jesus's name number three the biggest picture there's no way that we're on the vine because that's not god's desire for our life so we need to forgive people jesus led the way in that i mean jesus jesus died on a cross for that he took a beating for that he hung and he died and he suffocated for that so that we could be forgiven. So we get to forgive others. So maybe, maybe this week, maybe even just today, maybe you need to take stock. Maybe I need to take stock and be like, who am I holding things against? Now this is, again, this is not a magical, a, a magical incantation of, of just saying, God, okay, I forgive these people now, give me the car. It's not necessarily that. Step A, maybe forgive people and really forgive them. Not ask them for an explanation, 
not ask them for justification. It may not even mean that you go to them, but I think it's a good idea to go to them and let you know that you've forgiven them. But it may just mean that literally you offload the ill will that you're holding against someone. You let it go and you, you confess it to God. And then step two, God, what do you want for my life? What do you want for my marriage? What do you want for my family? What do you want for my job? What do you want for my home? What do you want for my life? Those things I want to want to. And then start praying those. But I will say it's dangerous because maybe what God wants for me, what God wants for you is not what we want for ourselves. But it's probably exactly the right thing we need. So if we can, and we should, forgive people and just start asking God, God, what do you want for my life? And then when he says what he wants, begin praying for those and believe in such a way that not only you pray for those things, but you go after them. That's a James idea. Faith without works kind of an idea. If we believe so much so that we think this is what God wants and we're praying for it, we also work towards it. That's how faith and works works together. We believe, so therefore we work. Not so that we can earn anything, but because we've already been graced. And then just, man, I think we have to repeat it. Forgiving people, forgive people. If we are a forgiving people, then we forgive people. And again, I am the vine, you are the branches. It just rings so true because this is not the way the world works. Like unwarranted, unmerited forgiveness, that's not normal. Nobody teaches that in, in, in any school. That's not, that's not normal. That's not worldly. It's not the way the world works. But it is the way the kingdom works. And like we've been talking about over the past several months, we have to be kingdom people. And the kingdom looks different. The kingdom loves different. The kingdom forgives differently. The kingdom wants differently. The kingdom is different. There's a lot going on there. Maybe, maybe re-listen or go to community group and you'll get to talk about it more this week. Um, thank you guys for being here. I, Zach is going to give us some announcements in one second. I'm going to pray as he's on his way up and then uh, we can scoot out and brush all the glitter off as we go outside. God, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Um, God, thank you that, that Jesus was a Jesus uh, Savior that wasn't just concerned um, with one thing, but he was concerned with all the things. Thank you that even in something as simple as seeing a tree that should bear fruit and be able to supply, he was able to teach. He was able to point us um, to a fact that if, if we have roots, if we have a story, then we should be able to provide for people. I pray you convict us in the areas that we are not being fruitful and make us cling closer to you. And I pray that that affects everything. That affects the way that we pray. It affects the way that we forgive. It affects the way that we trust you. And God, but ultimately, I pray that it brings you glory and grows your kingdom. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for dealing well with us. Thank you for guiding us and shepherding us and giving us a place to live, serve, and love and be loved. Make us in the kingdom, people. It's in your name we pray. Amen.